All right, good morning once again. I'm excited to uh, open the Bible this morning and uh, revisit Jesus. Spend more time with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we've been doing for the past nine weeks. This is week number 10 of our Law and Prophets series, an intentional time of walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is really regarded as some of the most uh, elegant teaching in all of history. Not just in the Christian tradition, but others outside the Christian tradition will look to Jesus' teaching, the wisdom expressed, um, the care, the concern, and the correction that Jesus brings in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, even people outside the Christian uh, faith will look at it and say, wow, this is beautiful. This is powerful teaching. So as people who do follow Jesus, we feel like this is a good use of our time, right? To follow after him, to sit with him, to listen closely to his teachings. What do we know about the Sermon on the Mount? Well, uh, most believe that it is a, it is a collection of Jesus' most common themes, his central teachings during the three years of his, his earthly ministry. And so if we get anything... If we learn anything in following after Jesus, we should probably pay attention to the Sermon on the Mount because this is Jesus' uh, key themes that he felt were the most important for us to learn as we go about our life in him. So today's message is, you know, I couldn't decide what to call today, so it's got two titles. The first is Distressing Disguises, Distressing Disguises or Something Beautiful for God. Maybe we should do a vote. <laughs> anyway, distressing disguises or something beautiful for God. As we begin, let's start with a joke. What is worse than finding a worm in your apple? Yeah, maybe some of you have been to elementary school. You know the answer to this. <laughs> finding half a worm in your apple, right? What's worse than finding a worm in your apple? Finding half a worm in your apple. There is nothing worse than false impressions. There's nothing worse than outward appearances that promise you one thing, but then prove false once you uh, see the inner reality. So you imagine an apple is all beautiful and shiny and good looking. You take a bite and then, oh no, there's half of an, a worm. Gross. This inconsistency, this hypocrisy, this deception, it's bad uh, when it's discovered in apples. But it's a thousand times worse when it's discovered in people. Have you ever had this kind of experience with someone where they presented themselves in such a way that you believed it, and then once you actually tr started to trust them or open yourself to them, all of a sudden, they were not delivering the goods. They were not following through on the, on the promises that they had made uh, implicitly or explicitly in the relationship, and all of a sudden you find yourself hurt, betrayed, let down, or feeling duped. It's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling when it happens in our apples or in our people. It can happen among Pharisees. It can happen among politicians. It can happen upon, uh, among reality show contestants. Yeah, it can, actually. Uh, pretense can show up in these reality shows. Uh, but it can also show up in you. And it can show up in, in me, too. I've done this. We are all capable of deception of false impressions, of pretense. We are all proficient in deception and pretense. It is part of our skill set, whether we like it or not. We all have that capacity, don't we? Maybe you've seen it in yourself before, and it's not a good feeling, is it? Now, these may seem like some silly questions, but here's where I want to begin, now that I've got the, jo the hilarious joke out of the way. Uh, these may seem like some silly questions, but I think they're important questions for us to ask. Think about this. Who is it 
Or what is it that is at the center of your faith practice? If you consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, what is it or who is it at the very center of the practice of that faith? And let's press a little bit beyond those Sunday school answers because I know someone was here like, Jesus! Or a Bible! No, good answers, true. But let's think more deeply about this. Really, in the most honest place you can imagine here, what is at the center? Who is at the center of your faith? Why do you do what you do in your life with God? Are you motivated to get out of bed every day and say, I'm a believer in Jesus, I'll follow Him, I'll make myself available to His teachings and His way? Why do you do that? Some of you, if I could give you a little truth serum injection, you might say, I do it because I'm afraid. Some people follow Jesus, God's love incarnate, out of fear. Some follow, uh, follow Jesus out of love. And rightly so. We should respond to the great love of God expressed to us in Jesus Christ with love, right? Some of us do it out of a sense of bargaining. We, we kind of have this, this operating sense of transactional uh, give and take, right? I do this for God. He'll do this for me. I want, you know, I mean, we, we look back at ancient cultures and we think, well, it's silly for them to think, well, my crops didn't grow. The gods must be angry. I know what we should do. Let's throw a virgin into the volcano and then we'll get rain and our crops will grow. Easy. I give, the gods give. We have this religious uh, mechanistic transactional thinking and some of us carry this bargaining sense into this, the, the, this space of worshiping Jesus too. I mean, ultimately, it has to run up against the idea of God's grace, this unmerited favor that He shows us in Jesus, but it's still there. It's like this muscle memory that's in us. We're like, uh, are you sure I can't throw a, someone into the volcano? Wouldn't that help? I could really use some blessing, right? What motivates your giving? What motivates your serving? What motivates your prayer life? And what motivates your fasting? Would you believe it's possible to follow Jesus and do all this Christian stuff the wrong way? True story. You can commit your whole life to doing this Jesus following and really end up doing it wrong. We can really miss the point. We can have some wild adventures in missing the point, all with the best intentions. We can uh, do all, follow Jesus, do all the Christian stuff to our own benefit. We can turn it all into being about us uh, and making it a very self-centered pursuit of Christ. Man, that's sad, but it's really, really, I think, common. And oftentimes, I think it's so common that it's oftentimes unrecognized. And my job today is to call it out a little bit, just like Jesus calls it out in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you have recognized this tendency in yourself. Some of you have seen this in the Christian world, but some of us have never seen it. In my, my job, if I do a good job today, I want you to see the matrix. I want you to be able to see it like, oh, there's something going on here. You know, um, I want you to have fuller vision of what it is that Jesus is trying to get us to see today. To be honest, to be honest, I have found myself all too often putting me and my needs first even in the practice of my faith. This is almost like my default. It's almost like I have a steering alignment issue that if I don't pay attention, I'm going to automatically go toward the ditch of self. It takes 
intentional, constant input to stay on the right road, to stay on the right path, because I am drawn to being self-centered. I can make my faith practice all about me. I can side with Jesus. I can say I'm siding with Jesus and doing it for His renown and His glory, but ultimately I'm looking out for number one. My, my, my decision-making uh, uh, matrix, my, my decision-making process is really centered in me. I'm looking out for number one. In difficult moments, I have clung to Jesus primarily for my own security. In difficult moments, I've clung to Jesus primarily for my own comfort and my own recognition, operating based solely on what I will get out of it. Those are the value questions I'm asking. It's like, well, what will it do for me? How will I benefit? Right? What will the payback be? What will the return on investment be for me? I mean, I hope I'm not talking to a room of people that just don't get this, that don't understand this. Maybe, has anyone seen this in themselves? I mean, I want to be, unzip the viscera and be honest, but I want to, I want to connect too and say, hey, we're, we're maybe starting from a similar place here. I know it's uncomfortable to talk about, but we are very self-absorbed by nature. We are very self-absorbed by nature. We are always looking out for ourselves, and we always are desiring some sort of praise from others. We want affirmation. We want accolades. We want people to say, you are doing a good job. And here, once again, Jesus knows this about us, and He takes intentional time to teach us about it during His Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. At the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus turns His attention to three pillars of Jewish devotion. He turns His attention to three pillars of Jewish devotion, which in turn also show up in our practice of faith in Jesus Christ. What are those three pillars? What are the three pillars of Jewish devotion? Doing good deeds. Number two, praying. And number three, fasting. So number one, doing good deeds. Number two, praying. And number three, fasting. Each of these is a rich on-ramp into deeper communion with God and with others. It must be said, these are designed, intended, given by God so that we would have these things, deeper communion with God and with each other. Good deeds, prayer, and fasting. But each of these things is fraught with peril. Each of these practices, they're dangerous. They're fraught with peril. They're, there's pitfalls here. There are spiritual dangers that lie in doing good deeds, in prayer, and in fasting. With the best of intentions, we can do things like give, pray, fast, live, laugh, love, whatever. We can do all these things with the wrong motives and completely miss the point. We can miss the point. We can sabotage the very purposes intended through doing good deeds and prayer and fasting, and we can undermine their intended potential. We've seen it happen over and over again. You've seen it happen in others, but you've also seen it probably in yourself. One of the commentaries I was using to prepare this message, the InterVarsity Press New Testament commentary, uh, explains it this way. One of human religion's greatest temptations is to act piously to elicit the praise of others. A secret atheist could practice religion in that form without the slightest element of faith. Such temptations were part and parcel of ancient religion. Yet, the same temptation is no less real today. Jesus reminds us that true piety means impressing God alone, living our lives in the recognition that God knows every thought and deed, and it is His approval alone 
that matters. It is God's approval alone that matters. Guys, God's approval alone is enough. It's perfect. It's life-giving. It makes us whole. But we have to believe that and we have to press into that truth. So how do we stay focused on God in the practice of our faith? How do we do that? How do we stay focused on, our, on God Himself in the practice of our faith? How do we live our lives centered, rooted in Jesus Christ, seeking only His approval? How do we strive to worship Him alone and redirect all the praise and all the glory back to Him? Is it even possible? Is it possible? Is there a way for us to get our eyes off of ourselves and genuinely, consistently on to Jesus in, the, in our faith and in our practice? I believe so. Why? Jesus wouldn't have set it before us if it wasn't possible. He wouldn't have put it before us and set it as a goal if He wasn't willing to come alongside and enable that in us through the giving of His Holy Spirit to enable us to do what He's called us to do. Yes, guys, fortunately, it is possible. Jesus provides not just a warning here, but He goes on to provide some very helpful and practical guidance. He helps us set in place some guardrails to keep us out of the ditch, to help us stay on the right path. Jesus lays out important steps that lead us to both freedom, but also to blessing. If we follow Jesus, we will find freedom, and in that we will find great blessing. Because the problem lies within our self-centeredness and in our need for acceptance and approval of others, the first step in this, as in so many situations, is to remove the audience. Remove the audience. If you see bad behaviors in a child, or if you sense bad behaviors in yourself, it's magical. Remove the audience. And things quiet down pretty quickly, don't they? Remove the audience. Let's look at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 of Matthew 6 today. Jesus starts out by saying, Watch out! Exclamation point. Watch out! Do, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. Familiar passage, right? We've read this part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Well, let's unpack it and let's listen closely. Verse uh, 1, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward of your Father in heaven. Wow. It's a big statement. But we do well to hear when Jesus says, watch out. Why? Why should we pay attention when Jesus says, watch out? He knows. He knows what lies ahead. We know, he knows the pitfalls. When Jesus, the creator of the universe and everything in it, when he says, watch out, what should we do? We should watch out, right? We should take it very seriously. We should take it very seriously and we should pay close attention. We should stop what we're doing and say, whoa, Jesus says, watch out. What is it I should watch out for? Here lies great danger. This is a risky space, so you must be aware, Jesus is saying. 
If you do the best stuff in the world for those in need, but you do it with the wrong motives, for the admiration of others, then you miss out. You miss out, ultimately, on God's reward, on God's blessing in your life. You becoming more Christ-like. Worse yet, the good things we offer, they become not so good things. Right? We can be doing the best type of thing in the world, but doing it with the wrong motives, and somehow it sours, it spoils that which we intended to do. I'm thinking of Ophelia in Hamlet when she says, Ophelia uh, points out to Hamlet, rich gifts wax poor when the givers prove unkind. It's like the richest gifts of all, they prove unkind when they're given with rotten motives, wrong motives. Our gifts of piety, they are tarnished when given in pretense and selfishness or for selfish gain. Yikes! Jesus seems to think this is a big deal. So what ought our response be? We think it's a big deal too, Jesus. You thought it was a big deal. Guess what? I think it's a big deal too. Let's look at verse 2. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to, your acts of to their ch acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. Now, when you serve others, Jesus doesn't say if, he says when you do these things. This is the kind of person you are in the world. When you serve others, when you give your money to those in need, you must not toot your own horn, you must not announce your awesomeness, you not, must not be signaling your virtue to everybody watching. If you do, I mean, you're not going to probably be blowing trumpets. That'd be kind of fun, actually. But yeah, I mean, how cool would that be? It's like you uh, hit enter on the iPad back there, and it's like, boop, 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 you know, yeah, you know, confetti cannons, you know. How cool would that be? That'd be so weird. But that's all you're going to get, right? If we blow trumpets about our snazzy deeds, the meager applause that we elicit from the onlookers, that's all we're going to get. Is it worth it? I mean, that's the trade there, right? If you do it to be seen by others and be celebrated by others, that like lame clapping you get, like, yay. That's it. That's all you get. I mean, wow. Good trade. By all means, Jesus says, enjoy the applause. Enjoy it. Because that's all you're going to get. That's all you're going to get out of this. That's all you're going to get out of it. No, no transformation. No, no, no change. No real benefit. Enjoy it because God is not impressed. God is not clapping for you. His, his applause is not being added to your chorus there. <laughs> Thankfully, those we bless, even with our self-righteous deeds, however, are still blessed. Even if we are left out in the cold. Even if we miss out on the joy of being blessed by our God. Let's look at verse 3 and 4. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. So here's what we are to do. I love how Jesus is kind to us here. You know, some people talk to you, and you feel like they've got a, one of those cartoon bubbles out here. They're talking to you, and they're saying words, but there's this thought cartoon bubble that says, idiot. You ever talk to, had someone talk to you like this? They're like, you know, idiot thought bubble. Sometimes I feel like there's an idiot thought bubble in the people I'm talking to, like they're thinking that I'm an idiot. Well, we don't get that with Jesus. Nothing about Jesus saying this communicates the idiot thought bubble, does it? He's saying, watch out. 
I want you to be free. I want you to be blessed. I love how Jesus is kind to us. He cares for us so well. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, don't be dumb or else. He actually warns us. He shows us the way to live so that. Jesus never goes in for this or else language with us. He always is talking about so that. Do this. So that. Okay? A lot of us were raised in a, in a form of Christianity that was really based on, pivoted on, or else language. Anyone else? Any show? I'll, I'll be brave enough. And it's like, do this or else. It's like our lives were hanging over the, 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 the fires of hell by a, by a string. It's like, you do this one more thing, bad, and you're done. Do this or else. Well, Jesus comes in with this so that language, inviting us to live in this way so that we might know God, that we might know His freedom, and we might discover His blessing. He warns us. He, he shows us the way to live so that we don't miss out on the goodness that God desires for us. Jesus simply says, starve your need for recognition. Starve your need for acclaim. Starve it. Starve it. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Deprive yourself of that, of that uh, attention. Deprive yourself of that self-glorification. Discipline yourself to give only in private. Become accustomed to obscurity. Welcome it. Jesus knows how we are made, and he recognizes our desire to be noticed, to be well-regarded among our peers and our onlookers. This can, though, the problem here, though, is that it can infect our Christian life and it can go on to hijack our worship and hijack, ruin our good deeds. So we must be intentional about stepping out of the spotlight. Look for opportunities to step out of the spotlight so that God gets all the glory. That God gets all the glory so that people will see what you have done and not praise you, but praise God instead. Now, it doesn't mean that you can only do good things and bless others in private in ways that they don't know. This doesn't mean that we can only do good in, while we're hiding away or away from others. Many times, that which you have been called to do to bless the world, to bless others, and to bless God, it will take place uh, in front of others. Others will see what you do. Others will see what you have done. But it's up to us to be mindful to be mindful, to check our motives, and to be quick to give that glory back to God and to recognize that it is Him who is the source of anything good that issues forth in my life. Anything good that I have to give to you comes from the Father, not from me. But there is a promise here from Jesus. Do this. Welcome obscurity, step out of the spotlight, get out of the way so God receives the glory, and you'll be blessed. You will be blessed. God will reward you at a soul level. Your life will become uh, enriched by His blessing. Let's look at um, what Peter has to say, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, 12. Uh, 11 and 12, I'm sorry. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when He judges the world. So when they see what you do, they will give honor to God. 
So this means that something good is coming in your life, being expressed in your life, and people are noticing. So it's not sinful, it's not wrong to do good deeds that other people might see. It's a heart issue, just like everything else Jesus is pointing out. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. This is Jesus' words, but uh, look at uh, 14 and 16. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Well, obviously, people are going to see us. How we live our lives, what we're doing in our lives, it's going to be visible to others. You are a light of, the light of the world, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Okay, so God, it's clear then that Jesus isn't calling us into this cloistered, secretive life where no one ever actually sees how we're living out our Christian faith. What Jesus is talking about is in our inner depths, the quietness of our hearts, this is springing forth from a place of devotion and, and, and a quiet obedience to Jesus. A willingness to really say, I must decrease and you must increase. He, he, he must increase and I must decrease. Whatever I can do to get out of the way so that all the glory goes to Him, I will do it. I'm also reminded of Christ's teaching later in Matthew 6.33 where he famously instructs to seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things then will come around and they'll show up in your life. But seek first the kingdom of God. What would it be like to live focusing everything I am and everything I do on God and His glory? I think that's a question I need to be asking a lot more often. What would it look like for me to, in this situation, in this decision, to be doing it as if I wanted God to receive all the glory? I want to live in a certain way. I want to be a certain way so that God and His glory receive all the acclaim. How freeing would it be for me to finally get out of my own way? To get out of my own way and how I worship, how I serve, and how I obey? To give my life and all that I have gladly in worshiping Jesus? What would that be like? I truly believe that it is possible, otherwise Jesus would not be instructing us to do it. He would not be telling us to do this. And why would the New Testament writers pile on like they do? If it's not possible, why would Jesus tell us to do it? And then why would the New Testament writers come along and say, yeah, do it, if it wasn't possible? The New Testament writers, Paul, Peter, John, all of them, they all say, do this. I commend this to you strongly. Jesus told us the truth. Let us live in that truth. How would this ethic have come to guide the church and Christians uh, and Christian behavior over the centuries, uh, nay millennia, <laughs> if it wasn't livable and if it wasn't true? If the way of Jesus hadn't proven itself over and over and over again, inviting people in and people discovering this is the way that humans were made to live. This is how we ought to live. Jesus is telling the truth. Would other followers of Jesus, just like us, would they have committed their lives to it and then faithfully experienced its truth as it showed up in all these different ways in their life? Would they? Would a lie have persisted this long inside the church if none of this was possible? I think not. I can't help but think about Mother Teresa in conversations like this. 
I can't help but think of Mother Teresa serving among India's sick and the poor. How many are familiar with Mother Teresa and her story, her work? She labored for years in obscurity in the city of Calcutta, India, living in squalid conditions. Not only did she care for the poor and the sick and the diseased and the dispossessed, I mean, she lived among them too, showing God's love in simple but transformative ways day after day after day. Now, believe it or not, here in the West, we've not known about Mother Teresa for that long. Uh, most of your, well, yeah, I'd say most of your parents have been along, <laughs> alive longer than she's been known in America, but that's, it's like from the 60s, so that's almost me. <laughs> I'll move on. That that's kind of <laughs> makes me feel sad inside. So, um, anyway, Mother Teresa, she became known to the West largely uh, in the late 60s through the work and the interviews of a man named Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, who was a British journalist, and he was working on a documentary uh, about Mother Teresa called Something Beautiful for God. A documentary called Something Beautiful for God. And this is also in book form. This is how I discovered it, but by Malcolm Muggeridge called Something Beautiful for God. I'm saying that repeated uh, more than once because I want you to get your hands on it. Watch it. Read it. It's beautiful. Something Beautiful for God. Muggeridge, who was an irreligious uh, liberal... He became a follower of Jesus Christ, largely due to these interactions that he had with Mother Teresa and her fellow sisters. He came into the, the experience one way, and he left profoundly different. Why? It was because of their testi the testimony of their selfless service among the most destitute people imaginable. It became for him a powerful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something about what Jesus has done to this Mother Teresa and what Jesus has done in the lives of these sisters, the way they're giving their lives daily to these poor and sick people. I can't, I don't know what to do with this. This is wrecking me. I don't know how to process this. This makes no sense unless what they're doing is true. The way that Mother Teresa and the sisters gave themselves to the poor, became a powerful witness to the gospel. Muggeridge, Malcolm Muggeridge, was deeply struck by their willingness to serve every day, showing love, believing that in doing so, they were actually serving the living Christ as he came to them day by day in all of his distressing disguises. They said, Mother Teresa said, every day I get to serve Jesus. When I put my hand on a sick, sad, and lonely person, when I hand food, when I bandage the, the wounds of the lepers, when I, when I help heal the sick, it is Jesus who is in front of me. What a privilege. What an honor to serve Christ himself as he comes to me in his distressing disguise. I want to read to you a part of the transcript of one of their interviews as Malcolm Muggeridge is talking to Mother Teresa. He, he begins by asking, This is asking a lot, isn't it? You ask these girls to live, in the poor, live like the poorest of the poor, to devote all their time and energy and life to the service of the poor. And Mother Teresa responds, This is what they want to give. 
They want to give to God everything. They know very well that it is to Christ the hungry and Christ the naked and Christ the homeless that they are doing it. And this conviction and this love is what makes the giving a joy. That's why you see the sisters are very happy. They are not forced to be happy. They are naturally happy because they feel that they have found what they have looked for. Muggeridge continues, but one thing that would, that would strike, I think, anybody looking on is the magnitude of what you're tackling. And apart from your own extraordinary faith and the marvelous faith of your sisters, the smallness of your resources. Don't you ever feel discouraged? Some people believe that these things should be done by great state organizations. They feel that a few loving souls trying to tackle such a thing is absurd. What do you think about it? And Mother Teresa responds, If the work is looked at just by our own eyes and only from our own way, naturally, we ourselves can do nothing. But in Christ, we can do all things. That is why this work has become possible. Because we are convinced that it is He, He who is working within us and through us, in the poor, and for the poor. That is why the work has become possible, because we are convinced that it is He, Christ, who is working within us and through us in the poor and for the poor. May we strive to live that kind of a life. May we strive for and may we strive for and discover that sense of presence, of, of purpose and resolve in our faith as we too follow after our Savior Jesus. May we get out of our own way. May we starve our need for attention. And may we truly offer all of our worship and all of our good deeds to God for His glory alone. May we glorify God in how we worship. May we glorify God in how we serve. May we glorify God in how we give ourselves to others. And indeed, as we give ourselves to Christ the hungry, to Christ the naked, and to Christ the homeless, as He comes to us today in His distressing disguises. And in doing so, when we do, may your whole life become something beautiful for God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you give us a divine restlessness, a divine discomfort with some of the things we've grown accustomed to, the things we've grown comfortable with. God, we hear Jesus' words today, and may we hear them in a fresh way, a convicting way that says, we have been deceiving others, yes, but we've been deceiving ourselves. Lord, I pray that uh, this would prompt us to examine our lives, to examine our relationship with you, examine our motives. God, some of us need to become far more acquainted with obscurity, far more willing to step out of the way so that you might receive glory and praise and honor. Lord, do a work in us as you draw us closer to Jesus. May we look to his example. May we look to the example of the apostles and of the early church and also to Mother Teresa and the sisters in Calcutta. And we might discover the joy, the reward, and the blessing of giving our lives faithfully to you in service of the gospel to others, meeting needs, seeing lives made whole. May our lives, too, become a powerful testimony of the power of the gospel. Lord, do a work here today. I pray that uh, for my brothers and sisters who've been following Jesus, I pray that you would uh, uh, strike a note in their heart. 
that something needs to change, something needs to be strengthened, something needs to be fanned into flame here. May the desire to see you glorified motivate us, center us, and, and compel us. I pray for my friends here that have never followed Jesus. I pray that they would hear invitation, that the way of Jesus leads to life, it leads to freedom, and it leads to blessing. Your word tells us that uh, all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved by the simple act of placing faith and trusting your life to him. In exchange, God sends his Holy Spirit into our lives to, to bring us back from death, free us from sin, heal us of our, of our self-centeredness so that we might become more and more like Jesus Christ. Word tells us too that when Jesus died for our sins, to cover over the blood guilt of our disobedience, that he was laid in a tomb and then three days later he was raised to new life and the word tells us that he is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters that all who believe in him if you believe with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you'll be saved and saved from yourself saved into an eternity of life with Jesus and God and so I pray that we would hear the truth of the gospel here today and that it would be uh, uh, witnessed powerfully among us. God, we make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to worship a bit more, and this is a good time to just sit with the Lord and maybe examine where you've been and why you've been living the way you've been living, and just get that right now. Because this week waits for us. There's tons of opportunity. There's tons of people that we will interact with. And what if we could go into this week understanding that those people I run into, I'm running into Christ. I can honor Jesus through how I treat others and how I interact with them. May my life be a powerful witness to the gospel this week. So make the most of this opportunity.